Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Caroline Hyde. This podcast has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show. I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Joe Weisenthal and Romain Bostic on Bloomberg Television. What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspective on the week's top stories and those you may just have missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. Facebook has been hit this past year with increased scrutiny from regulators surrounding repeated data lapses, privacy concerns and letting Russians exploit its platform to sway US elections. At the annual Cannes Lion Festival in France, I sat down for an exclusive interview with Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg, where she reflected on Facebook's past mishaps. There are things that we missed. We wish we had understood the Russian interference in the US election. We didn't. We missed it and addressed concerns over Facebook's plan to enter the cryptoverse. We're a long way from launch. Regulators have concerns. We're already meeting with them. We know we have a lot of work to do. We spoke about all of the challenges, past, present and future, facing the social media giant in front of a live audience in Cannes. But I started by asking her about the issue that made her a household name, diversity. It's been six years since Sheryl Sandberg published Lean In, about empowering women to become leaders in the workplace. While a lot has changed since then in her own life, at Facebook and in the tech industry, I asked her if there had been any real changes in terms of corporate diversity. I think it's a really important question and one that makes me particularly excited to be here talking with you on this stage with this audience because this audience, the creative community that does advertising, has the power to make us walk the walk and not just make it talking the talk. And here's why. People see more marketing messages by far than they see all other media. The numbers are striking. And so if we give people the real impression, if we market against stereotypes rather than to stereotypes, we're going to make, I think, a really big difference. Uh, Lean In started working on this. We um, helped uh, form the Glass Lion. I am thrilled that this organization is rolling this out. We're waiting on Friday to see who wins those awards. But think about the fact that this organization now has an award for the most best in terms of stereotypes against those gender stereotypes. Mm. That's totally different. Lean in my foundation, we did the Getty collection with the Getty organization four years ago. And before we did that, the number one photo that returned, if you said businesswoman, wait for it, is, was a woman, no face, short skirt, stiletto heels, walking up a ladder. (laughs) Oh, geez. That's not a businesswoman. <laughs> to the women who are here, like, please let us know if that's what you do in the office. <laughs> Ladders at the ready. That's right. Now, what is the image? The number one image is a real woman who looks like a real woman because she is in a buttoned-out shirt sitting at a desk mm. where you could actually get some work done. And if you look at what's happening in our industry, there are amazing examples. There's a new ad I just love. Yeah. It's P&G. It's a gray ad called First Shave. It's a father with his 
transgender son showing him his first shave. This ad went pretty viral on Facebook and got a million views in the first month. And I think people think in order to appeal and sell your products, you have to market into what people expect, mm. which are the old stereotypes we're trying to break down, and that's not true. The popularity of this ad shows that when we market to people against those stereotypes, market to people making the world better, not worse, it actually works. And study after study is showing that. There's a new one from last year that said that when you market gen against gender stereotypes, you actually increase your brand awareness by 10% and your sales by 26%. I think we also have an opportunity as an industry to come together to walk the walk on diversity ourselves. Yeah. So I'm really proud our, our newish CEO, Antonio Lucio, has been with us nine months, was part of a group here that announced Free the Work, which is a database of traditionally underrepresented minorities or women who can get behind the camera that we can really make the change. And so if this industry comes together, if we want to show people what it is to treat people as individuals, not as stereotypes, if we want to show people that girls can be strong and boys can be emotional, that business women don't sit around climbing up ladders in stiletto heels, but actually sit at desks and work, I think we change the world. And so I'm excited by everything going on here. And I think this is, this is our moment. We're going to make this happen. Great. That is so optimistic. And what I think is so amazing is that it's been six years since Lean In was first published. The fact that you then were data gathering and pushing out perspectives and ways in which people could work to ensure that as a female you had your voice heard, that diversity was focused on in that way. But what about the data now that you're seeing? We're not just lucky enough to be seeing what's happening in the advertising industry, but diversity is something that's needed across every industry that we talk about. And as a female executive and as someone so bound to this, how are you seeing the stats change? Well, one of the things that we just released, my foundation, Lean In and Survey Monkey, and this is really important data, is about what's happened after Me Too. Mm. And Me Too is really important. I mean, there has been so much sexual harassment. It was tolerated for too long. It's still being tolerated now. We have so much work to do. I know the Time's Up team is here to really make it that this doesn't happen. But it's not enough to not harass us. You need to not ignore us either. Mm -hmm. And one of the unintended consequences that our new data shows, we just released this a few weeks ago, is that a manager in the United States today, 60% of male managers are afraid to do a common workplace activity like having a meeting with a woman. Okay, wow. can we turn the lights up? I really wanna see the audience. Please raise your hand. Can we do that? Lights a little bit? Okay, it's a little bit better. Raise your hand if you've ever been promoted by someone you've never had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with. One person, yeah. okay. <laughs> raise your hand if you know anyone who's been promoted by someone that you can't get a meeting with. It's not gonna happen. Point made, yeah. So the US, in the US, a senior male manager is now nine times more likely to hesitate to travel with a junior woman and six times more likely to hesitate to have dinner with a woman. And that's a problem mm. because we all know who gets promoted. This has been a problem for women, particularly women of color, for a really long time, which is that men got that informal time. And I think there are a lot of situations now where after Me Too, people are saying, you gotta protect yourself. Mm. You don't wanna be falsely accused. But Travel happens in public airports. No one needs to be alone in a hotel room to take a work trip together. And dinners are not in apartments. Dinners are at restaurants and other people are there. And we have to be able to have those with women. 
And my message to others is, for some reason, you are uncomfortable having dinner alone with a man. No dinner, sorry, dinner alone with a woman. Don't have dinners with men. Group lunches for everyone. Yeah, be inclusive. Be inclusive and be fair and make it explicit. Explicit. Okay, really tangible ways in which of perhaps turning those rather depressing statistics around. You were talking about the way in which the industry can change and shape things at the moment. How is the industry advertising creatives, those sat in the audience with us at the moment, starting to use your product in different ways, in interesting ways? Is it all about stories? Two years ago, it was all about videos, and there's some interesting announcements you've been making in terms of watch. Where are we seeing that progress? How, who's doing it best? So one of the things that we know is if we're marketing to people, we have to be where they are. Mm. And I think the story of Facebook and advertising is that we helped people, and I think others did too, make the jump to mobile. And people went to mobile long before advertisers, right? <laughs> it took a long time for advertisers to figure out we need to be where people are. And now we're seeing increasingly other jumps, so stories. Stories are a brand new way of sharing. They're ephemeral, they're everywhere. We have three properties where we have 500 million people doing stories every day. And that means that as marketers, we need to be where they are. And so we are helping advertisers make that shift. Messaging. Mm -hmm. Mark has been talking about this lately. For a long time at Facebook, we've focused on really public sharing, yeah. the equivalent of the town hall. I post on Facebook, I post on Instagram to everyone. And we're still doing that. But more and more, people are also sharing in a private way, an encrypted way, more like a living room than a town hall, a one-to-one -one messaging. And we already have 20 billion messages every month between businesses and people, and some of those are the automated ones. But that means that messaging is going to be really important. Businesses are going to have to make that shift. Uh, Carolyn Everson is here. She runs our global sales team. And she and I always tell our teams that we want to be the best dollar, the best euro, the best minute you spend so that we can help you find the people who are interested in your products where they are and make your case. And while we're at a creative conference, it is amazing what can happen now, the combination of creativity that can happen on a device that big that we never expected before. With the privacy element, though, I mean, what, what marketers, advertisers have loved so much about Facebook is the data that you were able to bring them, the fact that they knew that they were targeting the right person at the right time with the right interest. As we go for more privacy, as we go for more one-on-one -on -one messaging, as perhaps we don't get to see what the browsing history has been, how do, how do you make that work for the advertisers to get access to us? How do you make it work for your business? I'm so glad you asked this question because I think people really believe that you can't do targeted advertising and protect privacy. Mm -hmm. And I think we've done a terrible job explaining it. So I want to be really clear. You can and we do. And that's really important. Okay. The fact that we do targeted advertising fuels our business. It enables us to provide a free service to 2.7 billion people in the world, many of whom, most of whom, could never afford it. It also helps small companies grow, and that's where the majority of job growth is. And that's because we give them the ability to reach people in a way bigger companies only could. So I was in Dublin just a few months ago. I met a woman in the bathroom of all places. <laughs> always She's the best place to meet Always the best place. <laughs> she uh, runs a dog hotel in London. Okay. And she said, thank you. Our whole business has been built on Facebook and Instagram because we can do targeted ads. She's like, I started as a tiny company. I was just taking care of dogs on my own. I couldn't buy an ad to all of the UK, even all of London. But on Facebook and Instagram, I could show my ad to dog lovers in London. Mm -hmm. And that's how my business grew. Now, let's talk about how we do that. Mm. We take her ad, 
We show it to all the people that we think are dog lovers in London. If we show it to you, you can click on any ad and say, why am I seeing this ad? And we'll tell you exactly why we think you're a dog lover in London. And then we give her back no individual data at all. We don't tell her who any dog lover is. We just give her back aggregate stats. And this is really important because if you see something that's really very targeted to you and you think it's violated your privacy to get there, it's really creepy and scary. And a lot of people believe that. If you understand the truth, which is that we haven't given any individual information, but we've just taken that ad and shown it, then all of a sudden it's a better experience. And so I think we have a much, much, we have to do a much better job explaining our business model and explaining why targeted advertising is so important to small businesses around the world so that people feel more comfortable because it's a great service. So on a one-on-one -on -one message, you will still perhaps see that ad, but it just won't feel creepy even though it is a one-on-one -on -one message? Well, we're working on it, right? Um, but again, it depends. You know, If it's targeted to you and it's a good experience and you believe that no one's reading your messages, and let's be clear, no one's reading your messages, that's a good experience. If it's targeted to you and you're worried about how that happened, mm -hmm. you're less comfortable. And that's why we need to make this case in a much, much clearer way. I like the way that you brought up that this has become a real focus point, privacy. And indeed, we've actually heard sort of the moments from Mark saying, look, I realize I didn't get it quick enough. I made a mistake here. Do you think Facebook, have you really come to understand the way in which the consumer is now viewing privacy and how are you building that into your culture, into your business model now? No, I think there has been a growing understanding of how important privacy is and how we have to protect it. I think if you look at some of the early iterations of the Facebook platform, we were allowing people to share too much data early on before 2014. If I used an app, I would share my information and I could share my friend's information. Mm -hmm. and it's really hard to remember, and this is not an excuse because I think we should have done better, but the real concern then was that we were hoarding data and not sharing it. People were very concerned that we were a walled garden and they couldn't share. And we had this vision that we would enable you to make your apps more social. So you have a playlist, we're friends, I want to hear your playlist. My friend has a birthday, I want to import that birthday to my calendar. Those are great experiences. But what we've learned over the years is we need to share the minimal amount of data in ways that people really understand it and have full control so we can create those experiences. And I think we're doing that now. Mm. We're also looking for the best models around the world. So we're in Europe. GDPR is the most far-reaching privacy legislation that's been passed. Now, it didn't pass anywhere else in the world, but we took those same controls and made them available everywhere. Because we know people care about their privacy and we know we need to give them the tools to understand this. You know, it's your information. You choose to share it with your friends on Facebook. You can choose to share it with businesses or not, and that is up to you. And we need to make it clearer how that works. Do you think the anger that you saw, that you witnessed, was justified? How did you take it, personally? Look, this has been hard. You know, as anyone who kind of wakes up in the morning and is working hard and trying to do the very best I can, being attacked, being attacked personally, not something I'd experienced before and definitely hard, but I think it should be hard. Hmm. Because Mark and I and the other Facebook leaders and even our employees, we have a really big responsibility. I have a really big responsibility. There are things that we missed. We wish we had understood the Russian interference in the US election. We didn't, we missed it. 
We've worked hard to get ahead of it, and I think we've done much better in the recent EU elections, the U.S. midterms. But the fact that this is hard, hard is important because we have a responsibility to people around the world who are using our services, and we have a responsibility, and I have a responsibility to protect them. It's really nice to hear you say that. Thank you. And I, I think also what I really like you bringing up is GDPR, is the EU elections. We're looking towards, I mean, we're already talking about it until we're blue in the face in the US about the 2020 elections. Are the right safeguards in place, do you think? Well, we're definitely working at building them. So if you think about what happened with election interference on our platform, if you go back to 2016, we were obviously worried about foreign actors interfering. But what that meant at the time was primarily hacking into data, mm. right? That was what foreign actors did. And so we built up defenses there and I think had a very good track record. What we really did not foresee at all, we missed it. Everyone missed it. But that's on us, you know, is a new, more insidious threat where people didn't hack in and take stuff, but they wrote, wrote fake stuff. You know, once that happened and we understood it, we knew that we needed to put serious engineering, serious money behind it. We've put billions of dollars into protecting our platform but we also needed better relationships. So the US Department of Homeland Security has a task force on this now. They didn't have that then. We work with them very closely. Mm. In the EU, we had a very local approach. We took everything we learned in the US, but we worked with experts from 28 countries. We had a local operations center here, and we were able to systematically find and take things down. We are now taking down a million fake accounts a day. Almost all we take down before anyone's seen them. Now, I am never, ever going to say to you or anyone else, we know everything that's happening on Facebook, we don't. Mm -hmm. But here's what we know. We know that we can come together with governments around the world and other companies to do better. We know that we are doing better. We've seen it in the EU. We've seen that we can take down these coordinated behavior now. And we know that the new threats haven't been invented and we have to be really vigilant to prevent against them. And that's what we're doing. You saw it in the EU. You saw it in the US midterms and we're going into elections around the world and the U.S. 2020 elections, uh, we're going to be as prepared as we possibly can. And how is it liaising, discussing, working with governments around the world? I mean, they look like they give you a pretty hard time, plenty of questioning, but what is it like building those sorts of relationships? Well, I think we're in a new phase. And at Facebook, we don't only want to help usher in the new phase, we want to help lead. And I think we are. We are we have a lot of work to do to earn back trust, a lot of work to do to prove it. Do you think you're getting there in terms of trust? I hope so, and I certainly, we are certainly trying, but we have a different approach to governments. So if you kind of take a step back and think about our industry, mm. I think this is a moment where the new rules are gonna get written. And it's really interesting. I give speeches every so often, and I'll look at people and I'll say, you know, the people who work with me, can someone get me a quote? And they give me a quote. And the quote basically says the following, it says, this new technology is changing everything. No longer are people discussing one-on-one. -on -one. Now anyone can say anything to anyone. And a lot of the information isn't even true and it is breaking down the world. People have never been so polarized, etc. Now, that sounds like you're talking about social media, Facebook, the internet. Yeah. And you are. That quote, something like exactly that, has also been written on the printing press, on the radio, on the TV. Now, I don't want to... Um, make it seem like our challenges aren't bigger. They are. Mm. The internet is bigger. People adopt it faster. What we've seen is unprecedented. But there is some commonality to this experience that new technology comes out. People celebrate it and see all the good it does. 
almost to the exclusion of any bad, then something bad happens and people see that, you know, the bad can happen and they focus on that and that's when the new rules are written. And any technology that's ever been made, you know, is for good, is for good and bad and we have that responsibility. And so with regulation, what we are trying to do is we are calling for regulation, not just saying we'll deal with it reluctantly, but we are calling for it. We are working with uh, President Macron in France on what would be a co-regulatory model for mm. content. We are working with people around the world on maybe a GDPR-like privacy legislation that we think would be a good thing. We want to not just be at the table, but really be noticing and acknowledging that companies like ours shouldn't make as many decisions as we do. We know that. New rules need to be written for the internet, and we want to help make that happen. And do you think that realistic rules are being talked about on Capitol Hill at the moment? It feels as though the EU has got the blueprint to a certain extent, but is the United States getting it? Do you think it will be fit for purpose? Well, the legislative process um, is never linear, <laughs> and so we'll see. But here's what we know. We do think GDPR is a good blueprint for privacy legislation, and we've been very public about that. We're also not waiting for legislation. So in the United States, there was a bill that did not pass called the Honest Ads Act. And what it said was, in political elections with political ads, you should be able to see who's paying for the ad, how much they spent, who's behind your ads. That bill didn't pass, but we built it. We built the tool. It was up and running for the U.S. midterms. It was up and running for the EU elections. You know, the GDPR controls. They passed in Europe. They didn't pass around the world, but we made them available around the world. And so we are very much trying to usher in the next era. We are very much trying to work collaboratively with governments to write the right rules. But until then, we're going to keep working and try to move ahead because we know people need protection and we want to be part of that. What about the growing call from the United States at the moment to break up the so-called monopolies, to break up Facebook, break up Google? You've actually responded with an interesting take saying, look, if we're going to do that, what about China? What about the Chinese competitors? How will they come in? How is that argument sort of landing on Capitol Hill? Do they, do they see that as a real problem? Yes. I mean, I think people are really worried about, about Chinese companies, which are not going to be broken up by their government, but are going to be pushed to export everywhere in the world. But, you know, when you think about what's underlying this conversation, what's underlying this conversation is people are worried about the size and power of the U.S. tech companies, whether it's us and others. And we understand that. We are large services. And we have a big impact in the world. And with that comes great responsibility. You know, antitrust is fundamentally about consumer choice and consumer benefit. And one of the things that we think of, and most companies in our sector, no matter how big we look at the time, kind of go through these patterns because new entrants are actually relatively easy. If you look at competition, you know, if you want to take a photo of us on the stage or someone wants to walk out of this room into this beautiful place we are and take a photo, absolutely you could share that on Instagram, but you can also share that on many other services, whether it's Google Photos, take a video, you can put it on YouTube, you know, you can share things on Snapchat. If you want to send a message, of course you could use WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger, but there's also iMessage and there's also WeChat and it's incredibly popular. And so in anything we do, there is a lot of consumer choice and we are committed to doing the things we need to do to make sure consumer choice continues, such as data portability. Mm. You can take all your data from Facebook, you can download it, and you can move it to another service. And a lot of our competitors over time have grown because we allow that. 
and we should be held to account to enable and allow that. But it's definitely true, I was in D.C. recently, that behind closed doors on both sides of the aisle, and as Nick Clegg has been uh, mm. talking around Europe, people are, and I think appropriately, worried about, about Chinese companies, which actually, uh, some of which are far bigger and have far many more people and more services than we do as well. And I think that's something that needs to be taken into account. Talk to us about Nick Clegg. Obviously, I've got a bit of a bias because I'm originally British and, and he, of course, was a very famous UK politician. But what is he doing as head of global affairs <laughs> and, and communications? So I love, I'm so glad we hired Nick. I spent a long time trying to persuade Nick to join us and he finally did. As I think most people know, he was the deputy prime minister of the UK. So, you know, talk about government experience. He has some. He's also not American. And in a company where most of the people who report to me and Mark are American. Most of our company is, you know, we're growing, but 85% of our users are outside the U.S. and Canada. That's really important. Um, so he's running our global communications, global policy teams around the world. He's a loud voice for remembering that the world is global. Mark and I want to run the company differently, and part of that is bringing in new people who can help us do that. He also, and it's an amazing thing, he speaks five languages. I speak one, <laughs> yet he speaks my mother tongue better than I do. And he has all these, I guess, unbelievably British, and I hope you don't mind, a little bit weird expression. <laughs> we love a weird expression. So last week he said to me that we don't want to teach grandmothers to suck eggs. <laughs> what does that even mean? Who you, sucks <laughs> eggs? I literally, what does that mean? What grandmother, yeah. What grandmother is sitting around sucking eggs? <laughs> I probably need to use my mobile <laughs> to be able to find out, no idea. It's these incredible expressions I learn from him all the time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Then Sheryl Sandberg discussed M&A going forward. I asked if she was worried that the regulatory scrutiny would hinder purchases of advantageous companies that would make Facebook better. And if Facebook needs to get better. Well, it's interesting when you think about M&A because Instagram is so big now. But when we bought Instagram, it had 13 employees. 13. I remember when the announcement happened and, you know, some of the banks would call and be like, we're here to do your integration work. I'm like... Well, we've already given all of them a badge and a computer. We're good. <laughs> We're good to go, but Instagram was small. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we'll see what happens with M&A. We're certainly not in the market with big acquisitions, but a lot of the acquisitions we made weren't big at the time. And they've now become enormous platforms that we know well. What, going back to the regulatory conversation, just to be topical right now, I'm pretty sure, well, I'm sure most of you know crypto in the audience. I'm not banking on everyone having used it, but the Libra announcement. What exactly is it going to do for those in the audience? How are advertisers going to use it, as well as the consumer base? Yeah. Well, we haven't launched anything. We've mm -hmm. done an announcement, and I think even once we do, we're pretty far away from advertisers using it. But let me talk, if it's okay, about what this is about. Yeah. So we're a technology company, obviously, but we're a technology company that wants to bring everyone along. Mark's vision was give people voice all around the world. The idea that you could give people voice who never had it before. There are 4 billion people in the world who don't have access to the internet. 
Hmm. And that's something we've worked on. We've now connected over 100 million through programs we have around the world, largely with carriers. There are a billion people in the world who are not connected to the financial system. So let's talk about what that means. That means if you have a dollar, you have nowhere to keep it that's secure, and not a surprise, bad for everyone, but particularly bad for women. There are 100 million women in the world who are sending remit, what's called remittances, remittance payments home. That means most of them are leaving their homes, some of their countries, working often in other people's homes so they can send money back to their families, and they're paying huge fees and 20% more than men. And so we want technology to help everyone. And what we announced yesterday is the formation of a global association, the Libra Association. It's going to be based in Geneva. We have 27 partners, some incredible partners. We have PayPal and MasterCard and Visa and Vodafone and Spotify and Uber and Lyft, right? Real companies, as well as NGOs and nonprofits. And what we would like to do is help there be a global cryptocurrency that's more inclusive. Now, we're a long way from launch. Regulators have concerns. We're already meeting with them. We know we have a lot of work to do. But this was an announcement of what we would like to do with a roadmap for people to jump in and help us do it. And we're going to not run this. It's going to be an association not reporting to Facebook. So your immediate response to the regulatory scrutiny, we've already had Maxine Waters in the US, plenty of Congress people speaking out of how it should be halted already. We've had Mark Carney saying, hmm, the door's open, but well, the door's not open, but our minds are open. How do you feel about the original an initial take up of this? Well, we announced this early. We, we, all we've done so far is published a white paper, announced the formation of an association. And that's because we know we have a lot of people to work with. We know this is a heavy, heavily regulated space. We need to talk to people, meet with people, and that's what we're doing. And we are uh, then going to launch. Okay, so hold your horses to a certain extent. <laughs> a lot of hard work to do from, there, from here to there. And we've talked a little bit about how your product is changing, how you're adapting, making privacy a, a key focus, access to finance a key focus. We've talked about how perhaps for better or worse, the industry is starting to change from a diversity perspective. How have you changed in the last couple of years as a leader, as a mother, as a person? Let's first of all talk about as a leader, the lessons you've learned over the last couple of years. What do you think the key takeaways have been? Oh my God, I've learned a lot, right? Um, I guess through some personal, obviously the personal struggle I've been through is probably what I learned the most from. I lost my husband very suddenly four years ago and and that probably changed me more than anything else possibly could. Um, you know, it was interesting. When it happened, I turned to my friend Adam Grant, who was a psychologist, who I eventually wrote a book on this about, but I never thought that then. And I said, you know, am I going to get through this? Am I going to get through this? Like, how much strength do I have? How much resilience do I have? And he said that was the wrong question. Because resilience is not a thing you're born a set amount with a set amount. It's a muscle and we build it and we build it in ourselves and we build it in others. And what people don't realize is that you grow from things that are hard. Mm. I've grown tremendously from the personal struggles and I think I'm growing as a leader and a person through the Facebook challenges as well. Everyone knows about the trauma, but no one knows about the growth. So going back to the personal, I'll ask the audience a question. How many people have heard of PTSD? Yeah, everyone has, right? But less than 15% of people who go through something traumatic actually have that type of experience. So going back to the audience again, how many people have heard of post-traumatic growth? One or two, basically no one. 
but 50% of people who go through something traumatic grow from the experience. And I've grown a lot from losing my husband. I would give every bit of growth back to have him back for one day. I mean, you don't want to grow this way. Particularly on Sunday, that must have been hard. Yeah, yeah, thank you for noticing Father's Day in the US. But we do, you know, so I'm gonna turn 50 this summer. And before I lost Dave, I would have approached this as so many of my friends, and as I approached some of the big birthdays before with a lot of whining. <laughs> not not of the quaffable type. A lot of whining, you know. <laughs> my hair needs to be dyed every two days. I'm getting wrinkles. Oh my God, I'm so old. I would never say that even in jest because Dave never turned 50. Mm. And so when my birthday happens in August, I will be so filled with gratitude and joy in a way I never would be before. And so hard things happen. They happen to us personally, they happen to us professionally, and the question is, what are we gonna do? And God, I don't handle it well every day. And I cry, I've cried over, I mean, I've cried over Dave endlessly, I've cried over the challenges I've had in other ways, but I try to grow and learn and try to take something and make it better. That deserves a clap. So, you know, if I could give one gift to everyone in this audience, this is the gift. Sometime, it, maybe, you'll decide if it's a gift. Sometime in the next week, someone will complain to you that they're growing old. In the next week. And you put your hands on their shoulders and you say, you know what, there's two choices. You either grow old or you don't. Yeah. There's no standing still and it is a gift. And you grow wiser and you feel the last, obviously, you grew leaps and bounds and thanks to you, we now have an amazing book learning about how to deal with, with grief. And my husband read it avidly as someone who's lost his mother and I read it avidly as someone who hasn't and wants to know how to best respond to those sort of people. But do you think that you've, what, how would you say you've grown and learned throughout the last two years just with the Facebook issues? No, as I said, the Facebook issues have been hard. So what have I learned? I've learned a lot. Um, I've learned that when mistakes happen, you have to really roll up your sleeves and debrief. And that has been really important to Facebook. A long time ago, Mark and I, Mark and I used to take our management team to different places once a year to learn. We visited companies all over the world. And we went to the US Marine training at Quantico. Wow. <laughs> okay, I learned a lot. How to do First a push-up? <laughs> I suck at that stuff. Like all the physical stuff, like I knew I would be bad at. Really? But you would think, that like I could turn on and off a faucet, but if someone's yelling at you, I can't even do that. So <laughs> Mark was much better. But the thing we really learned there was they debrief every single time, whether it's an actual mission where someone dies in the actual war or field, or it's a training mission just at Quantico, they sit down and debrief. And it's one of the things I think we've done. One of the questions people ask a lot is like, do you fire people at Facebook? Who's gotten fired for all of this? We do fire people but we do not hang them out to drive publicly. And we do not do that because we wanna have a culture where we can sit down and debrief. And if when things went wrong at Facebook, everyone knew we were gonna go out and publicly string someone up, no one would be honest about what happened and we would never fix the problems. And so instead, what we do every time something goes wrong, and we've had many opportunities, is we get in a room and we debrief. And probably the thing that I am proudest of I've been on other teams. I've worked in the government, I've worked at other companies, and teams that are under the smallest amount of pressure compared to us implode. They implode because people spend all their time covering themselves and all their time pointing fingers. And with all the trouble we've had, we have a culture of really learning. 
And the reason we have a culture, I have not had a single meeting where I felt like someone was in my conference room basically to tell me someone else messed up. All of my meetings have the property where people are sitting there, here's what we missed, here's what we're doing better, here's how we're gonna fix it. And I'm proud of that. That doesn't mean we've done everything perfectly because we haven't. It doesn't mean we're not gonna make more mistakes because we will. And it doesn't mean there's not like a Herculean task in front of us of trying to protect a platform this big, but we are approaching it by rolling up our sleeves and trying to be honest about where the problems happened. And that is the most important thing I've learned as a leader. Did you ever question your role as a leader? Of course. I don't know any good leaders that didn't. I mean, when we missed what happened you know, with the Russian election, when we failed to respond quickly enough to Cambridge Analytica, of course. Um, what stopped you abandoning ship? It's, I think two things. You know, people do ask, why do you stay through this, right? That's what you're nicely asking. I think for two reasons. The first is that I stay and I know Mark stays because we feel like we have a real responsibility. We built this, we hired the team, we are the people most likely to fix it because we know how the company operates. We can bring in amazing people like Nick, pair them up with the people we've had for a long time like others, and we really know how the systems are made. And I feel a real responsibility to stay there and fix it. But the other is that through all of it, I just believe so deeply in what happens on Facebook. I remember there, I love cartoons, there was the old cartoon on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. Is anyone even old enough to remember that? Not in a smile, be nice, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Some people laughed. Facebook put real identity online. I was a public school kid growing up in Miami. If I wanted to say something to the world, I had absolutely no opportunity to do that. Mm. You had to be rich, famous, have famous parents, something to do that. That wasn't available to me. But now, anywhere in the world, people can do this. Last week, we rolled out blood donations in our fifth country, which was the US. And I did the rollout, and as I was doing it, I was talking about this amazing story I heard from Pakistan, a country we rolled out before. This woman named Sasha, her father was having an open heart, open heart surgery, which is very personal to me because that's probably the operation that could have saved my husband had he had it, but we didn't know. Um, and it was Ramadan, and so people aren't donating as much blood because they're fasting yeah. and they were worried about shortages. So 24 hours before the operation, she went online and she posted, and two total strangers showed up at the hospital and donated blood and that night they used that blood to save her father. And with everything we've been through, the bad threatens to out, to out, outflank the good. Outshout the good. Outshout the good, even though it's much smaller. And I know that I have a responsibility to do everything I can to prevent the bad so the good can keep happening because there is so much good. People want to help each other, particularly when there's a real name and face I, um, I started my career working on leprosy in India at the World Bank. And you know, if you work in development as I did, economists talk about the, uh, the invisible victim. Why do we let a million children die of unclean water in this world every year? Why? Mm. Because a million is too hard to picture. But if there was a child and you saw their picture in front of you, you would never let that child, you know, die of dehydration. Something is easy to fix. That's right. And so, I think at its very best, what Facebook does is make the invisible victim visible. Sasha's dad, everyone knows there are blood shortages. 
Those two women could have donated the night before, but they didn't. Why did they? Because they saw a picture of a girl and her father. Mm. And then they volunteered to save a life. And that's what I think happens when you put people together online around the world. And so I stay because I believe and I am more committed than ever. And that's quite an amazing thing considering you have children to protect as well. You're a mother. I'm interested in, as a mother, what your social media policy is like at home for the kids. They're now teenagers. They're starting to get to the age of having these. Mm -hmm. So I have a 14-year-old and 11-year-old. So my 11-year-old is not allowed on Facebook, Instagram. It's 13. We, ob we, obey, we obey the rules. Um, but my 14-year-old is, um, I can't decide if right now he does more eye-rolling or more Snapchatting with his friends, <laughs> Instagram with his friends. He does both. Um, but what I've tried to do is teach him. You need to know who you're connected to. No strangers in your group chats. That's not safe. Be kind. Be kind. Be the kid who's standing up for the other kids. Don't let anything bad happen. And not every moment is a time to be on the phone. If you've got homework, that would be a more important thing to do. <laughs> Lest he forget. Correct. Lest I forget, I've been joyously hogging you in terms of my questions, but we've got five minutes and we want to throw it to the audience in terms of your questions. Of course, we're a tech-savvy lot, so I've got the iPad at the ready to ask some questions, so please do put them onto your app, make sure that you're making your voices heard. But some of them are asking you in particular about, you talked about halting the spread of fake news. Even after acknowledging, this is an interesting one, about not to take down the doctor video of Nancy Pelosi. Is it, what, why have you decided to do that when it had so many views? So it's a really important question and certainly something that's been hard and we're struggling with. Here's what we do. If it's hate, if it's bullying, we take it down because we think no one should see that. When something is misinformation, meaning it's false, we don't take it down because we think Free expression demands that the only way to fight bad information is with good information. If you take down the last thing, it's the last thing that stands. And this is hard. This is hard with, even harder with deep fakes. Mm -hmm. But what we've done on, on misinformation is we send it to third-party fact-checkers. If they mark it as false, we dramatically decrease distribution. So it gets like 20% of what it would have gotten. We mark it as false. So if you go to share it, we pop up and say, this has been marked as false. Do you really want to share it? And if I see it, not because you shared it, you wouldn't do that, but someone else here shared it. Um, it says this was marked false. And we show related articles, which are articles which are showing the other side of the story. Mm. Now, this one's been hard, it continues to be hard, and deep fakes pose a whole new challenge. And so we are really working with AI, with our computer scientists, to try to figure out how we, how we deal with this, because we think it's going to be an increasing threat going forward. And I like that you mention AI because one of the ongoing debates within technology Silicon Valley itself is biases being baked into AI and how we can ensure that that's not going to be the case. There's an interesting uh, question that's getting a few votes up here saying, how are you looking at emerging concerns about some of the proprietary functions in your core ads and unintentionally proving discriminatory. They call out the HUD case, which for those who aren't American is the housing and ur urban development case. This was all about finding renters and, and people who are going to be purchasing homes. That's right. So there's no place for discrimination on Facebook and we take that really seriously. We entered what we think is a very historic settlement um, recently where we are not allowing certain types of targeting in certain areas, the most protected housing uh, finance credit. 
all of these technologies have the potential to have bias in them. And so what we are doing is, again, working with people in ethics, working with computer scientists, working with AI, so that as these technologies are developed, we can continue uh, to make sure that they don't have biases we don't want to see. I think that's a fun, really interesting answer. Here's an interesting question that sometimes people think, you know, in that moment where you're like, is Instagram listening to something that I've just been saying? Because really weirdly, I was talking with my friends and now suddenly I've got an advert right. that's targeted at me. This is becoming more popular as we see speakers in our, I mean, I've got both a Google speaker and an Amazon Alexa, so I mean, completely all in on this. But how, are you, right. how do you respond to the use of microphones? Right, so let's be clear, Instagram is not listening to you. <laughs> Not, not happening, not going to happen. Um, I think people need to understand why they're seeing what they see. So on Facebook, you can look at any ad and you can type down and say, why am I seeing this ad? And we will answer. The main answer to what people see is based on who they're following and who their friends are. That basically, you know, if you and I are connected, I will see your posts. And if I have a lot of friends I'm connected to, I will see the posts from the people I interact with the most. So if you make excellent posts and someone else doesn't, I'll like and comment and share yours more. I'll see more of those. Okay. There you go. They're not listening. Here's a nice one for you in terms of your main advice for women in leadership. How can we bring, help bring more women on to lead? So look, men have run the world for a really long time. And with no offense to any of the fabulous men in this audience, I'm not sure it's going that well. <laughs> I think we might be able to do better. Mm -hmm. There are 13 countries run by women. No one knows how many countries there are in the world. There's a lot of debate about it, but it's something like 197. 13 are run by women. Sobering fact. 13. Women have 5 to 6% of the Fortune 500 jobs in the US and similar numbers around the world, and these numbers haven't moved for a decade. So we need to understand that something needs to change. And that brings me right back to where we started, which is this is the creative community. There has never been a bigger opportunity for us to market differently. There has never been an opportunity for us to show people what they could be and change the stereotypes. Because until we change the stereotypes, we're not going to change this. I'll do, I'll do one last thing with the audience. Men only, men only. Raise your hand if you were called bossy as a little boy. Not one. Not one hand. Women, raise your hand if you were called bossy as a little girl. That's right. So why do we call boys, girls bossy? Because we don't expect leadership. And we can change this. We can change this with the ads we create. We can change this in our daily behavior. So homework assignment for everyone. You'll leave here, you'll go back home, go to a playground anywhere in the world. And so you can watch someone call a little girl bossy, probably her parents. And you walk right up to them and you say, that little girl isn't bossy. That little girl has executive leadership skills. <laughs> Very nice. I want to I wanna try that the opposite. Ready? That little boy has executive leadership skills. No humor. That's because humor surprises us. So even for us, it is so surprising that it's funny that a little girl has executive leadership skills. That's what we need to change. And wow. we can. This audience can change it. Well put. Before we finish, and it has been beautifully circular in the way that we've gone through this conversation, I want a quick, quick fire round with you. Let's learn a little bit more about you and what makes you tick. 
I'm interested, you, talking to talk, walking the walk. You once said that you leave the office at 5.30 p.m. Do you still? I do, almost all the time. I mean, sometimes not, but most of the time I do. What about in terms of watching content yourself? There's some amazing content from makers out in the audience, but I happen to know that you don't mind relaxing with the odd TV program. What are you watching at the moment? I do watch um, a certain amount of late night TV by myself. <laughs> what I'm watching right now is This Is Us, okay. which is unbelievably great. Clap. Yeah, I'm getting applause, <laughs> right? So good. Uh, how do you deal with the jet lag? You've just come rolled in at, uh, this morning. Goodness knows what time it is in San Francisco. Massive amounts of caffeine. Okay, good answer. <laughs> what I remember when I first started, I worked at the US Treasury. My very first day, someone offered me a Diet Coke. And I said, no, I don't drink caffeine. And she said, really? Widely available, relatively inexpensive, completely legal upper. And I thought, good point. <laughs> and I haven't looked back. <laughs> Very nice. Diet Coke's for everyone. Diet Coke break. Meanwhile, uh, what are you going to be doing tonight? I can. You know, I was, because I just got in this morning, going to go to sleep. But I have a friend in town, so I may have dinner with a friend. Big night out for me. And what would you choose of the French dish that you're going to have? Oh my God. I think it has to be the cheese here. Yeah. And the butter. The baguette and butter. The butter is so <laughs> Winner every time. And I once watched this bit of a British institution. It's called Desert Island Discs. It's a program on Radio 4 that you did an episode of, and it was fantastic. But it listed some of your top songs ever. If we go to Facebook Beach tonight and there's a particular song on, what would it be that you just wouldn't be able to control yourself if you had to go out and dance? So I just remain the biggest Elton John fan, and I'm Still Standing has a lot of personal resonance. Have you met him yet? I have not. I can't believe <laughs> Elton John, you need to meet Sheryl Sandberg. That's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our Daily Market Close Show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.